Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about the Annunciation and Mary's example of faithful obedience. Then listeners submitted questions on the Bible, Vatican II, and solidarity. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. You know what today is, Bishop? March um, 24th. (laughs) Is it your birthday? No, it's not. It's chocolate-covered raisins day. How do you feel about chocolate-covered raisins? I actually, they're okay. I'd rather have (laughs) chocolate-covered peanuts, but but not during Lent. Yeah. I wish I knew this. I could have brought them in for my staff and everything and said happy, yeah. Well, maybe for Easter, say, hey, because because we missed it, you know, uh, wanted to, Uh didn't want to miss a celebration. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, tomorrow we do have a celebration in the church, the Solemnity of the Annunciation. Before we get into that, uh, do you have an opening prayer for us? Since you mentioned that, I'll just do the opening prayer for Mass for tomorrow. By the way, I always feel, I've always thought that this should be a holy day of obligation, the solemnity of the Annunciation. I think we talked about that. I think I said that on a on a show one time. Yeah. And, you know, it's such an important feast. Maybe it's not because it's right in Lent all the time, but or most of the time, but uh, it's a great feast. So hopefully we'll get to talk about it. But I'll I'll do the prayer now of okay. um, the solemnity of the Annunciation of the Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O God, who willed that your word should take on the reality of human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, grant, we pray, that we who confess our Redeemer to be God and man may merit to become partakers even in his divine nature, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't think we've really talked in too much depth about this feast day, and thought maybe uh, if you'd be willing, Bishop, you could break down the gospel a little bit that we'd hear at tomorrow's Mass. Sure. Do you want to read it, and then I'll talk about it? Sure. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I have no relations with man? And the angel said to her in reply, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called barren. 
for nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Thanks, Kyle. It's interesting when the, the this this account of the announcement of the birth of Jesus, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So we kind of uh, know then that John the Baptist is six months older right. than Jesus. In any event, it was the angel Gabriel who was one of the uh, an important messenger that God sent. He's one of the seven angels who stand in God's presence and just earlier in this first chapter of Luke, we read of Gabriel being sent to Zechariah in the temple of Jerusalem. So now he's sent to this little, pretty much unknown town called Nazareth. I think it's interesting that St. Luke tells us where Nazareth is because people wouldn't have known. It was such an insignificant farming village. He said, a town of Galilee, because uh-huh. you know it was it wouldn't have been very well known. It was the northern part of Palestine. And so you have Gabriel being sent to these two different places, two different missions, first to the father of, of John the Baptist, but a place everybody knew, Jerusalem. And then he sends him to this small farming village. And if you've ever been to Nazareth, there are remains there of the ancient city. It's beneath the modern town of Nazareth, Hmm. and it's been partially excavated. I was there, and it's really only a few acres in size. The the town was small at the time of Jesus and Mm -hmm. only had uh, a few hundred inhabitants. And we know from the remains that have been uncovered that the, the houses were you know, they had thatched roofs, the, the, you know, some stone walls. There were no luxury items found. So, so this was not only con- an, considered an unimportant village, it was pretty poor. I mean, it was a very simple place. And I think that's good to know. That's mm-hmm. where Mary lived. That's where Joseph lived. So St. Luke tells us that Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothed, that's the first stage of marriage. At that time, usually a young woman was betrothed by her father to a young man. The girls were usually about 12, 13 years old, you know. They were considered married when they were betrothed. They would even be spoken of as husband and wife. But the bride would continue to live in her father's house, and there wouldn't have been any sexual relations. It'd be a year or so after the betrothal that the husband would bring his wife to live in his house, and then they would have sexual relations. So so at this point, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're in this first stage of marriage. She's still a virgin. St. Luke tells us that Joseph is of the house of David, so he's a descendant of King David. He tells us the name of the virgin, Mary, and of course, that's a form of the Hebrew name Miriam. That was the name of Aaron's sister, so... She had a a very Jewish name. Joseph is also a very Jewish name. It was uh, one of the 12 sons of Jacob was Joseph. So they both come from families that honor the Jewish tradition. They gave them Jewish names. So I think that's interesting to think about. And what did he say? Well, we all know, we say it all the time. Hail, full of grace. He didn't say Mary. He said, hail, full of grace. The Lord is with you. The word hail comes from, if you look at the Greek, it's really literally rejoice. Uh, So the message that he was bringing to Mary should bring her joy. He says, rejoice, 
full of grace. The Lord is with you. So the angels assuring her that God is present to her. The Lord is with you. And Mary's initial reaction wasn't to rejoice. (laughs) St. Luke says she was greatly troubled at what was said and Mm -hmm. pondered what sort of greeting this might be. So she's she's confused, you know, <laughs> perplexed, you know, greatly troubled because she doesn't say anything at this point, but she's pondering what did this greeting mean? You know, basically she's being told that she's very special to God and that God has something for her to do. And so being perplexed and pondering this, Gabriel then said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. When Gabriel appeared to others, he had also said, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, seeing a, an angel, this would, be, would evoke some fear, I think, but why not be afraid? And he says, you have found favor with God. She's God's favored one. You might remember in the book of Exodus, God said to Moses, you have found favor with me and you are my intimate friend. So Gabriel's telling Mary, you're you're God's favored one. So then he explains this favor. He says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. Okay, here she is betrothed to Joseph, but she hadn't moved into his house yet. And the angel's telling her, you'll conceive and bear a son, and you're to name him Jesus. Okay, this is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew name Joshua. I think I've said this before on this program. And remember, Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. Uh, So this was a popular name, Jesus, Yeshua in the first century. So that wasn't really unusual that he said you're to name him Jesus. But it's obviously a very important name. It means God saves. And then Gabriel explains how how special Jesus will be, what role he plays. He says, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. So just as God is great, okay, Jesus will be great. You know, Gabriel had told Zechariah that his son John would be great in the sight of God. But, you know, Jesus will be great in a far more exalted way. He'll be called Son of the Most High. He will be called Son of the Most High. That's a title for God, the Most High. Mm -hmm. Jesus will be called. He's the Son of God. Now, there are times in the Old Testament where various individuals were referred to as sons of God. You know, sometimes kings, sometimes angels, etc., that they would have a special relationship with God. But why would, would Jesus be, be called Son of God, Son of the Most High? Gabriel goes on to say, the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. That means he'll rule Israel. That's his promise. Jesus will be a king. He'll be given the throne of David, his father. Remember, Joseph is of the house of David. Uh, So Mary's pondering all this, a lot to think about. Uh, Her son's going to be great. He's going to be called son of the most high. He's going to rule. And then she's thinking about all this, and then Gabriel says something more. 
He says, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this is different from the other descendants of David. You know, they would rule for a period. Here he's, you know, he's saying, basically, Jesus is going to rule forever. His kingdom will have no end. So Mary's puzzled, and she asks a question. She says to the angel, how can this be, since I have no relations with a man? You know, she's betrothed to Joseph. She hasn't had sexual relations. You know, I, I think it means that she, at that point, was thinking that Gabriel's words were a statement about what's to happen immediately, you know, that she's going to conceive. How could she conceive now? And what does the angel say to her in response? He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Most High the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit's the creative power of God. You know, think about how at creation, the Spirit of God swept over the waters at creation. So this breath of God that God breathes into humans, giving them life, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, will come upon Mary and overshadow her with his life-giving power. So it's God through whom she will conceive Jesus, not any human being. Mm -hmm. And that's why the angel Gabriel then says, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. He'll be conceived through the Holy Spirit. He'll be holy and will be called the son of God. He'll be the son of God. Now, he had already said he'll be called Son of the Most High, but now he's being even the Son of God. This is even more profound. He's going to be begotten by God, you know, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't like other sons of God with a small s. Right. Like in the when they're referred to in the Old Testament, here he's talking about a unique Son of God. Mary doesn't ask for a sign uh, that this is going to happen. You know, Zechariah asked for a sign. Mary doesn't ask for a sign. Mm. But the Gabriel does give give her a sign. He says, Behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. So in referring to Elizabeth, Mary's relative could have been a cousin, but she was obviously elderly, who was considered barren. Mary wouldn't, didn't know this at this point, that Elizabeth was pregnant. So she learns this from the angel, and this is a sign for her, that he can give sons to her barren relative, Elizabeth. So he can give a son to the virgin, mm -hmm. Mary. And he says, for nothing will be impossible for God. Now, Gabriel didn't ask her, he didn't say, do you consent to this? <laughs> now, he might have, but Mary didn't even wait. She consented to it without being even, without or before Gabriel even asked. She said, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. You know, in the Greek word translated handmaid, it literally means slave. Hmm. You know, this idea of being absolutely obedient and submissive to God completely available, open to God's will. 
whatever God asks, she's basically saying, I'm ready to do what the Lord asks. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. So this is unbelievable faith, beautiful obedience. And then the angel departed. So hopefully this little reflection on the Annunciation can help you know, to ponder this beautiful mystery. It's the first joyful mystery of the rosary. And even though it's not a holy day of obligation, I just, you know, think about maybe trying to go to Mass tomorrow. Yeah. Any particular tie-in with this and Lent? Things just kind of happen when you only have 365 days in a year and things, you're you're celebrating things that took place over 30, 40 years. Right. You know, it's a little hard because you kind of were taken out of Lent in my experience because, you know, the reason we celebrate March 25th is because it's nine months before the celebration of Christmas on December 25th. So Jesus was conceived on March 25th, and that's what we're celebrating with the Annunciation. It's really a celebration of the Incarnation. Right. The Word really became flesh, not on December 25th, but on March 25th, Right, because Mary conceived after she received the message of the angel, from the angel. So how to connect it with, um, with Lent? I think for me, it's Mary's response. I don't say, if I meditate, I don't say, I am the handmaid of the Lord. I kind of make it personal. I say, I am the servant of the Lord, being male. Mm-hmm. Uh, and may it be done to me according to your word. Yeah. You know, Lent is a time to grow in faith and to grow in our obedience. So, you know, to I can see that connection because the Lenten penances we do is are also to help us to conform our lives more to the will of God. And no one did that more perfectly than the Blessed Virgin Mary. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have some of your listeners' many questions from a perspective Catholic about Bible translations, uh, if Vatican II has been misunderstood, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who has graciously offered to answer questions that listeners have submitted. Our first listener wrote, Hello, Bishop. I'm a prospective Catholic and have been looking to purchase a Catholic Bible. It is my understanding that the NAB is the only translation approved for use during Mass and is on the USCCB website, and that all editions of the NAB available for public purchase contain the same set of footnotes. I've been told that many of these are written in a character that seems almost to undermine the faith. For instance, they deny that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 is a reference to purgatory, and they deny that Christ predicted his crucifixion in Matthew 16, 21. 
After listening to your recent episode about doctrinal integrity in hymns, I was wondering your thoughts on this and if any action is planned. Thank you. Oh, that is a very good question, and it's it's good to get a question from a prospective Catholic. Yeah. And uh, you know, I hope this uh, listener is is um, perhaps in in an RCIA program. I'm not sure. I'm always glad that there are prospective Catholics out there listening to Truth and Charity. Yeah. Uh, I you know as I I listen to those questions, I I think. I could break it down into two answers. First about, and this might be interesting to, to listeners, I, I don't know that we've talked about this, but there are various uh, translations of the Bible in English, mm-hmm. and uh, some are approved for Catholic use and others are not. And, and then he asked specifically about the New American Bible, which is the translation we do at, at Mass, and a, a spe- specifically about a couple of problematic footnotes. So let's look at that. You know, I, I sometimes get, that question, like what what Bible should I use? Mm-hmm. What Bible should I buy? You know, there's a lot of different versions. I think there's actually a few thousand, you know, kinds of versions mm-hmm. of of the Bible that you could get. So I don't know if I want to make a judgment of what is best, but I think it's always important to see if it's uh, approved by the Catholic Church, and that's that's really important because some are not approved because there's some inaccuracies in them, or there might be a bias. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to, to make sure it's Catholic approved. The basis for the readings at Mass is the New American Bible, which was first published in 1970. Now, when you look at all these different translations of the Bible into English, none of them's perfect. You know, some things are lost in translation. I think it's really important that there it be a translation from the original languages because that's more accurate. So it's closer to the original text, the original languages being Hebrew and Greek. But, you know, there's no perfect translation because the full significance is, is hard to sometimes get. There might not be good English words for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's two ways of approaching translation. As I said, it needs to be Catholic approved. The ones, some of them that are approved by the Catholic Church include the New American Bible, which we use at Mass, mm-hmm. the Revised Standard Version, we call that the RSV. Then there's a new Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. Then there's the New Jerusalem Bible, there's the Contemporary English Bible, and the Good News Bible. Now, those first three. The New American Bible, the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version, they are more literal translation. They translate from the original languages in a pretty much word-for-word, you know, way. That's kind of that's that principle of translation is called formal equivalence. I recommend those. Okay. Okay. So New American Bible, Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version. The other ones are looser. Like if you get the New Jerusalem Bible or the Good News Bible or a contemporary English Bible, they use a different, more informal style called dynamic equivalence. So it's maybe more contemporary kind of language, but it's not as exact, you know. So now some say, well, how do I know if this is approved by the church? Well, it would say on the cover of the Bible, Catholic edition. So that way you would know. Now, another thing, too, you have to get a Catholic edition if you want all 70, 
uh, three books of the Catholic Bible included. Mm-hmm. If you just get a Protestant Bible, you're only going to have 66 books of Protestant edition. So that's another thing. I, if, I guess this is just a personal favorite. I like the Revised Standard Version, Catholic edition, because it's very literal. And yet it's, it's so close to the original Hebrew and Greek. And it's also beautiful English, I think. Okay. I think it's more beautiful, the English, than what we have in the New American Bible that's read at the Mass, that's in the lectionary. So I will often, if I'm preparing a talk or a homily, I'll often have both Bibles there in front of me. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'll have the New American Bible, but I'll have the Revi- New Revised Standard there too, the Revised Standard Version. And it's interesting if you look, if you have a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, all the biblical quotes in there are from the RSV. Huh. They're from the Revised Standard Version, not from the New American Bible. Okay. I don't know if you ever noticed that. I um, now, there's always continual work on translations. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's, there's work being done now on a, a new translation of the New Testament of the New American Bible. There has already been a revision of the New American Bible's Old Testament. I think it might have been 10 years ago or so. So anyhow, that's just part of the answer to the questions from the the listener. Now, the, the concern about the footnotes in the New American Bible, you know, I don't know, I haven't studied the footnotes. I did know about the one that he's referencing, and I agree that it's problematic. But of course, when you have it read at Mass, we don't have the footnotes. It's part of the lectionary, so there's no footnotes in the lectionary. But there is a flawed footnote. I agree. That 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, I, I really don't like the footnote. The footnote basically uh, – well, I guess people want to know what is 1 Corinthians three fifteen. It talks about – well, You have to kind of know the whole passage. Let me read the whole passage. This is verses 12 to 15. No one can lay a foundation other than the one that is there, namely Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each will come to light, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If the work stands that someone built upon the foundation, that person will receive a wage. But if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. The footnote says that this text has sometimes been used to support the notion of purgatory, though it does not envisage this. I think that judgment is kind of inaccurate. I mean, down through the ages, if you look at Fathers of the Church and a lot of others, they say this text is a possible reference to purgatory. Uh So for this footnote to say it isn't, I mean, maybe it's not, but you know, the, the fact is to say it's not is, is not, I mean, it's going against what a lot of fathers of the church said. It may be a reference to purgatory. I think it, to just dismiss it without explanation doesn't really report the fuller Catholic tradition. 
And it says the notion of purgatory. Well, we're not just talking about a notion. This is a dogma of our faith. Right. You know, it's strange that a Catholic Bible would speak of the notion rather than the, the truth of purgatory. And, you know, like this possibility that this passage is referring to purgatory. I mean, St. Augustine, St. Cyprian, St. Thomas Aquinas, all of them say that this could re be referring to purgatory. And we see it actually in the catechism of the Catholic Church. When the catechism says, the tradition of the church by reference to certain texts of scripture speaks of a cleansing fire. This is when it's teaching about purgatory and it mentioned, and it cites 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15. <laughs> so if, if someone wants to understand that quote from Corinthians in a wider way, that's fine. But to exclude the idea that it could have anything to do with purgatory, I think is, is troubling. So anyhow, I hope when they revise that they'll take that footnote out or change it. So I hope that answered the question of, of the, uh, although I wouldn't say don't buy a, the New American Bible because of a footnote, you know, I think. Should I, should I cross that out in my Bible? Just make a little, yeah. Bishop, I, I, Bishop yeah, said, I, Bishop said I could put do this. Out. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Good. And it's just a footnote. It's not part of the inspired word of God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so kind of the, the last part of that question, talking about the doctrinal integrity of hymns that the USCCB put out that statement. Do you anticipate anything like this for taking a look at Bible translations and, and seeing if there's anything that needs to be fixed out of them? Well, again, this isn't. We do have a committee that looks at Bible translations. Actually, it's a subcommittee of the Committee on Doctrine. Okay, but that's looking at the translations. It doesn't look at footnotes. Okay, I don't think they do. But yeah, but I might bring it to their attention if now that I've received this inquiry. All right. Well, good. Thanks for submitting that question. Whoever did. Someone asked, "Do you think Vatican II has been misunderstood after more than fifty years? Why is it still causing division?" Um, that is a really good question. I think because of poor interpretations. Okay. Um, I mean, not long after the council, you had misinterpretations, and they continue even today, where people are saying things like Vatican II said this or Vatican II thought, th uh, thought this. Look at the documents. That's the problem. Not just rumors about what Vatican II taught. And one needs to read the documents in continuity with the prior tradition of the church, you know, what we call a hermeneutic of continuity, not a hermeneutic of rupture. Hermeneutic means interpretation. This is a council of the Catholic Church that is in continuity with other councils. Mm -hmm. This isn't a break. You know, some people thought, oh, it's a new church came about because of the Second Vatican Council. No. It was it, that's no, no new doctrine. There's no new dogma. There's an updating, a revival, a renewal, aggiornamento in uh, Italian. But unfortunately, it has been mis certain parts of it have been misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say on the side. I hate to use the political categories, but on the left or the more progressive wing, they will oftentimes or sometimes will will neglect the continuity and kind of you know say 
there was these these big radical changes, you know, and one. But sometimes that's fed by an agenda. Mm-hmm. They want uh, the church to move in a certain direction. But then you have the traditionalists on the right who don't accept that that church teaching can can develop mm-hmm. in an organic way. I know some traditionalists who who don't like the more positive presentation of the Jewish people that mm. we have in the in the uh, document, especially the document on the decree Nostra Aetate, or they they disagree with other things. Well, that's wrong too. I mean, the Holy Spirit. This is a living tradition of the church. The Holy Spirit guided the church and the bishops at the Second Vatican Council. So I think we have to avoid those misinterpretations or whatever from both both extremes. We're talking here about an authentic magisterium of the church. This was an ecumenical council approved by the Pope. Its authority should not be dismissed by either side. Stick with the documents and what the documents say. Uh, So I hope that answers the question. All right. Another listener said, with so much division in our country, I hear people mention the need for solidarity a lot. I first heard the word in the 1980s when Poland was going through a historic change. What does solidarity mean exactly? How does it apply to us today? I think that's a great question. I've talked about the principle of of solidarity before on this show. It's one of the principle, what's one of the main principles of Catholic social teaching. It is essential part of our faith. And that is basically that we are our brothers and sisters keepers. People of any whatever national, racial, ethnic, economic background, we're all one family. Every person is his brother's keeper or her brother's or sister's keeper. God entrusts us to each other. I think that my favorite description of this principle of solidarity came from one of the encyclicals of Pope St. John Paul II. John Paul says, solidarity is not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say, to the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all, end quote. Hmm. That's what solidarity is. We, you know, as Christians, as Catholics, we need to be committed to human solidarity. We should be concerned about everyone, seeing everyone in the world as our brothers and sisters. As that Remember in uh, the Pope's recent trip to Iraq, the motto for his trip was, we are all brothers and sisters. That's what solidarity means, that we should be concerned for everyone, especially the poor, uh, that we're all part of this human community, this family. And that means wealthy countries should not be indifferent to poor countries, that none of us should be indifferent when others are living in misery or poverty or don't have human rights. Really, that solidarity is part of loving our neighbor. You know, it's part of our commitment to the common good. 
This principle of solidarity, even though you don't always find the word, is there throughout both the Old and the New Testament. This is part of our tradition, that we are one single human family, no barriers. Um, Pope Francis speaks against that globalization of indifference. Mm. And that's so important. We cannot be indifferent to others. We can't be indifferent to injustices or people being denied human rights. The whole principle of the common good is connected to this principle of solidarity and the principle of the preferential option for the poor and the principle of the universal destination of goods. So all of these principles of Catholic social teaching go together. And it's really interesting that the labor movement in Poland took that as the name for their movement, Solidarność, uh, Solidarity. So the workers of Poland under communist oppression, they were fighting for their rights, their human rights and their religious freedom, etc. They were in solidarity with each other. And really so much of the world then became in solidarity with the suffering, persecuted people of Poland, especially the workers, uh, supporting their rights. Um, so hopefully that's helpful to our questioner. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Our next listener submitted question is, how would you respond to someone who doesn't believe in God because they maintain that everything can be explained by science? Doesn't science point to a creator? How can we explain that? Yes, I've talked to this about this uh, numerous times on this show, uh, how science indeed points to a creator when I've talked about the relationship between faith and science, between theology and science. I think there's various things that I would probably bring up about uh, how everything cannot be explained by science. I maybe would start with love, <laughs> you know? How does one explain love? How does one explain our ability to reflect upon ourselves? How does one account for the beginning of life and energy in, in the universe or the order of the universe? You know, science uh, studies these issues, but science cannot explain these mysteries. And that's where God's revelation comes in. Mm -hmm. I find that so exciting to see the, to study science and the development of the universe and of the, of the human person and all that. And I think that reveals, uh, especially beauty, that um, there needs to be an all powerful, all beautiful source of all of this. All right. Finally, we have maybe a good catch-all for, for what we're missing out on. What's something you would like to talk about that no one has asked you about recently? Oh, I, oh, that's a good question. No one has asked me about um, specific questions about what's going on in the diocese. Okay. Yeah, so I would just say that um, we're kind of moving now towards a post-pandemic reality with a lot of hope as as herd immunity grows, as uh, vaccines are distributed more widely. So I'd say there's a certain excitement about uh, the lifting, uh, eventual lifting of restrictions and kind of 
getting back to uh, normal parish activities, etc. I can't give a timetable. A lot of that's going to depend. But, but I think there's a certain joyful anticipation. But I think there's also on my mind a lot is, um, is the need for welcoming people back mm-hmm. and to reach out to those who have perhaps not been attending mass during the pandemic as people return or, you know, inviting people to return, encouraging people to return who may have gotten out of the habit mm-hmm. of Sunday mass. So that's been on my mind a lot. And I'll be talking to my priests, our priests and that about, about this. It's really important, but it's not just incumbent upon the priests, but, but all of us to kind of be missionary disciples and, and see this, um, you know, winding down of the pandemic, thanks be to God, as an opportunity for parish renewal and and parish revival. And a lot of that is through personal outreach to our brothers and sisters who have have been away, many of them who've been participating virtually, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe some haven't been, but trying to, I guess I would say, reinvigorate the ecclesial life. And I also would add to that... um, our Catholic schools, which saw a drop in enrollment during the pandemic, and that's nationwide, about 6 7% hmm. uh, reduction, uh, reduction in enrollment in Catholic schools. I'd like to see that enrollment increase, and I think we have to reach out and share with others the importance and the value of Catholic education so we can strengthen our schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe the the pandemic forced us to to skip ahead and really reach out more digitally than we have in the past, which was maybe a, a good thing that came out of all of this. But now, like you said, if people are not returning, maybe that forces us to be more evangelical and reach out more to people. And, and maybe that's one-on-one you know, phone calls or visits or whatever. Maybe this can force us to, to form some new habits of, of reaching out outside of the church. Yep. And we're all called to be evangelizers. Yeah, it's never going to happen if it's just the priests. We need everybody to kind of uh, be welcoming and encouraging uh, people to return. Very good. All right, and just a heads up for people: this upcoming Holy Week, the masses that you are going to be celebrating, Bishop, are going to be streamed online. So if people want to join in on those, starting with Palm Sunday at St. Matt's, St. Matthew's Cathedral. That'll be on St. Matthew's Cathedral's YouTube channel, streaming live. But then... 9 a.m. South South Bend Chrism Mass, the Fort Wayne Chrism Mass, the Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Vigil. All of those masses or services in the case of Good Friday are going to be streamed online, either through uh, the local cathedral or the diocesan... Facebook and YouTube's very good. Yeah, everyone's invited. I especially the Chrism masses because I don't think they're going to be open to the public this year because of the social distancing and all of our priests. There'd be very few able to to be accommodated. But but the St. Matthew Cathedral Chrism Mass will be live streamed at seven thirty p.m. on Monday, March 29th. and then the Fort Wayne Chrism Mass will be Tuesday. March 30th at 7.30 p.m. at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Fort Wayne. So, uh, But also the whole Triduum, uh, Holy Thursday, I'll be at St. Matt's. Good Friday and Easter Vigil, I'll be at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. All right. 
So people can join in virtually, if not in person, especially this year. So thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. And reminder, if people have questions, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Yeah, but I have a special request of you, Kyle. Okay. You know, I have a that's a lot of homilies uh-huh. for me to prepare before next week. So would you mind sending me your ideas or if you want to write one for me, that would be a big help. Don't don't you have these down? Like the Chrism <laughs> Chrism Masses. Can you just pull you one out what? from like ten years I, ago and you forget? No, uh, I never do that. But you know what? Um I do really love preparing these homilies. These liturgies are just so important, so beautiful. But you know, it's just getting the time. You know, yeah. that's because there's so many in one week. You know, and I want to make sure that each one is is good quality. But uh, no, I do. I do really enjoy. I try to put some extra free hours in my schedule these days so I I can work on these homilies. Yeah. yeah. But if you get some ideas, or if Sebastian has any ideas, okay. just send them to me. Okay. <laughs> right, sounds good. <laughs> Okay, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.